0: father we just come before you now dear lord and we just thank you and praise you lord that you are such a generous god father that you do not withhold anything from your people lord you give us the tools and the information and all of the enablement through the power of your holy spirit father to walk the walk that you have given us in christ jesus lord and now father as we uh, come to this final chapter we just ask now that you just show us lord how to minister to to the gospel how to minister in it father how to share it how to how to make it of the the life and breath of who we are in our being in christ father so we just thank you lord and we just ask that you just uh, be in this place lord tonight in jesus name amen uh the thing i really love about this particular chapter in this particular letter is it's personal as well as pastoral because paul closes with lots of personal messages much more so than he did with any of the other four letters that we just studied and so i just feel like this is probably a very very um very special letter i think from him to those that he references later on in the letter His paternal and his intimate tone was especially important, I think, since he had never actually visited Colossae, and he wanted to be able to connect with the people there in order to address the teachings from the false teachers that had infiltrated the church. So he really needed to make sure that he had some credibility. So he associated himself with people that they knew and trusted from within their own body so that they would receive his teaching and correction, not just authoritatively, because he had the authority of an apostle. So certainly he could have carried that. But there's another position of power that we all have, too, and that's relationally. That's how our relationships with people enable us to influence and to to, um, help guide and direct them. We'll learn later in the epistle that Epaphras, a fellow Colossian and probably the founder and leader of the church, went to Rome in order to minister to Paul in prison and to talk to him about the heresy that was starting to rise up in the church. Epaphras um, became a believer during Paul's two-year Ephesian ministry, so there was a history between the two of them. And now Epaphras, in concern for his church, confided in Paul regarding the false teaching that was starting to circulate among his flock. The false teachers were saying that Jesus wasn't God, which came from Gnosticism, that taught flesh was evil and spirit was good. And since Jesus was manifested in the flesh, he could not be good, therefore he could not be God. Added to this false teaching was the aesthetic practice of mysticism, which promoted a stern self-denial and punishing of one's body, you know, that flagellation that they talk about sometimes in the early Catholic Church. And then there were also elements of Jewish legalism that was brought into the Church, teaching that circumcision was necessary for salvation and the observance of Jewish dietary practices and holy days must be kept. So this was just, when I read all of this, it's like, this church was a hot mess. I mean, think about all of these different doctrines and all of these different things coming at them from different places. It wasn't just one false teacher. These were multiple false teachers. These people were getting bad information from everywhere. And so I can only imagine what the confusion within that church had to be. And some of the conversations that must have been going on between the church members, you know, they probably were asking, you know, who should we follow? You know, who's the right, who's saying the right thing here? Which doctrine is the right doctrine? Because that, this is a lot of confusion. Uh, Am I doing what I'm supposed to do to be saved? Because now they're telling me I've got to get circumcised or I got to keep a feast or whatever. And the big question is, if Jesus isn't God, who is he? These teachings could not be tolerated. So Paul wrote this letter to declare the absolute deity of Christ and his headship as creator and redeemer. And so when we get to the fourth chapter, and in keeping with Paul's familiar approach to ministry, prayer is most prominent. This is where our labor in the gospel begins. So in verses two through four, it says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Well, of all the things that he could have done, Paul offered up prayer first and foremost in the face of all of this false teaching. He could have rolled out a great church-wide program that got the Colossians back on track. He could have called them to participate in 30 days of a Pauline-driven church. Or he could have called them to memorize the prayer of Perez. Or he could even have them taking part in the denial fast. But instead of all of these different things to do, he called them to prayer as first and foremost to deal with this heresy. Paul believed in constant, continuous prayer, exhorting Thessalonians to pray without ceasing, and conversely, that he prayed always for them. So here again, Paul urges us to be courageously persistent in prayer, alert for specific needs, and focused on giving thanks. The New Living Translation uh, translates this to say that we're to devote ourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart, implying that bold commitment, always prepared to prayerfully go before the Lord with whatever is going on in our lives and the lives of others should be our posture when we go to prayer. A few weeks ago, Noreen shared with us that God delights in our prayers, and from Proverbs 15:8, and that we're to come to him in ardent, passionate prayer, asking our omnipotent God to do seemingly impossible works. So while man often seeks after new and different methods to tap into God's power, the Lord is just looking for us to be diligently dedicated to prayer. The other important part of our prayer life is that of giving thanks. In many of Paul's letters, he offers prayers of thanksgiving. In Ephesians 5, verse 20, he says, Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 6, he says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then earlier in Colossians for uh, Chapter 3, verse 17, he says that whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I really do think it's easier to keep our eyes on Jesus when we're thanking him for the many blessings we receive from him and through others. Once we offer up prayers of thanks, we immediately acknowledge how sovereign the Lord is and our hearts are humbled before our almighty Father God. When I read some of Paul's circumstances around his prayers, I have to ask, what's he so thankful about? He's in prison. He's incarcerated. He's cut off from the normal day-to-day fellowship in life that he's used to. But we will learn as we walk further and further with the Lord that adversity doesn't mean that we're not appreciative for what God has done or is doing in our lives. Paul can thank God for his imprisonment because it gave him the opportunity to share the gospel. After all, he's got a captive audience with the guards as much as he is a captive himself. So he asks for prayer to enable him to speak it clearly, boldly, graciously, and wisely. And all I can do is say, wow, because it doesn't take much for me to have a pity party. I can get a little bit of a bad day, a little bit off track. And before you know it, I'm just, woe is me. I'm not thanking God, my husband, my job, or nobody. I'm just unhappy. But in Christ, if we really stay focused on what God has done and what he's doing in our lives, we can retain that joy through thanks and through giving prayer. Last week, Trudy shared from Colossians 3 about how we can live the new life we have in Christ. And here in chapter 4, Paul follows up saying prayer is the enabler of a new life in Christ. That prayer keeps, helps us to make the gospel our walk as well as our talk, making it real and being an effective witness even when we face difficult situations. In 2 Thessalonians verse, uh, chapter 3 verse 1 Paul asks that the brethren pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. So you can see he was always fueling his his walk his ministry with prayer and so here he asked for an open door while in confinement so he can share the freedom of the gospel with others. And he wants to be able to share it accurately without fear or restraint and knowing exactly what approach to use when talking to the diverse peoples and cultures that he would encounter. And so I have to ask, ladies, are you prepared for any opportunity God opens to give an answer to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you? Or do your circumstances dictate whether it's a good time to share the keys of freedom and eternal life to those imprisoned souls that you meet? I know sometimes I do. It's like, oh, that person probably needs to hear from the Lord. Mm, Not my day. Not my time. Not my mood. I don't feel like it. Sometimes the trouble in our lives isn't what's preventing us from experiencing and sharing the joy of salvation in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we just need to be thankful and remember who and what we have in Christ. A new life with Christ doesn't always put us in a new situation. Oftentimes we end up with even more difficult trials. But that doesn't mean we don't use every opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those around us. It will remind us of the joy and freedom he gives us each and every day. Regardless of our circumstances, ladies, thankful prayer that seeks new opportunities to share the gospel is the most important expression of the new life we have in Christ. And we must ask the Lord to prepare us for those times, regardless of how we feel. Now, next in verses 5 and 6, Paul shares how we can be living epistles to the world. He says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. We know from James 1.5 that if we ask for wisdom, the Lord will gladly give it to us generously. The wisdom from God is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, merciful, fruitful, unbiased, and without hypocrisy, James 3:17 tells us. So if we're going to speak with grace seasoned with salt, that comes from the wisdom that enables us to do all of these things. So the Colossians are encouraged by Paul to conduct themselves wisely toward outsiders or those in the world. And you have to think about the setting here that to the Jews of that day, every non-Jew was an outsider. And the same applied to the non-Christian in relation to Christians. And we can see that in 1 Corinthians five twelve and 13 and 1 Thessalonians four twelve. You see, we really are not of this world. That's not just a, a, a phrase in the spiritual sense. We don't really live here. This is not our home. That's what Jesus said of his kingdom in John 18, 36. And if we, as daughters of the king, are from his kingdom, we also are not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven while we merely live here on earth for the moment. But we are called to do more than just occupy. We're called to a holy calling that's lived out in our daily lives. So Paul urges us to live and act with spiritual wisdom that's to be demonstrated both outside and within the church. He commands us to make the most of the opportunities given to us. Literally translated, Paul is saying, buying up or redeeming the opportunity we have available to us. Basically, he's saying, don't just sit there like a bump on the log. Get up. Don't wait for that opportunity to fall into your lap. Go for it. Just do it. You can see the hurting people around you. You can see the needing people around you. Why would you withhold that sustenance and that comfort from them? Because you don't feel like it or you're not thankful enough for what, the God, for what God has done with you to share that with others. Kathy touched on this last weekend at our retreat, and I'm going to be promoting the retreat studies a lot. So if you didn't go and you don't have the CDs, hopefully by the time you leave here tonight, you will order yourself a pack and get it from the bookstore. But she touched on ministering to other people out of love, regardless of how we feel, when in her study called Love the Road Less Traveled. And Kathy said that God's expectation is that we walk in love as Jesus walked, giving the world an example because the time is short. And love must be the motivation that energizes our witness, both in word and deed. I was so busted up by her study. I told her that too over lunch, did not appreciate it at all because it convicted me of just my attitude about how and when I share the gospel and what's my motivation. It's not about, you know, Donna feeling right about it. It's about loving others enough to want them into the kingdom of heaven. And that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Time is short. So Paul exhorts us not to waste an opportunity to avail ourselves of every chance to share the gospel and to be a blessing to others. So how do we demonstrate this spiritual wisdom we're supposed to have toward others? Verse 6 says, we're to let our speech always be with grace, seasoned with thought that we may know how we ought to answer each other. Again, Paul says to walk the talk and talk the walk. Through our speech, we exercise our spiritual wisdom toward the world. You know how we're always told not to use absolutes like always and never, you know, when you read communications things and you're not supposed to converse with your husband with absolutes and ultimatums and whatnot. Well, Paul certainly had no problem with them here at all. The word says our speech is to always be with grace, seasoned with salt always is always, whether we're talking to our neighbor or the grocery clerk, the barista at Starbucks, a co-worker, our husband, pastor, or friend, and we're to do it whether we're sharing the gospel or discussing the weather, because he doesn't say this necessarily within the context of sharing the word. Our speech is always to be seasoned with salt. James also has a lot to say about the tongue and how we use our words that you can read as homework during the summer. I'm not going to go into the the terrible tongue, the beast behind the ivory cage. But suffice it to say that gracious speech comes from being ruled and yielded to the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit enables us to always speak what is kind, sensitive, loving, and thoughtful. Ephesians 4.15 says, We're to speak the truth in love. So if our speech is always to be with grace, our words and sometimes our silence, ladies, must be energized by the Holy Spirit. Knowing when not to talk can be just as gracious as knowing when to talk. We have to look to the Spirit to prompt us for both. Ecclesiastes 5.2 warns us, Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth therefore let your words be few since salt preserves whatever it's added to if our speech is seasoned with salt it will be wholesome and healthy for the hearers what we say will have a purifying influence in a world corrupted by filthy language and an immoral innuendo when our speech is flavored with salt it has spiritual charm and it attracts others We will speak blessing to others and add to not take away from their lives with our speech and sometimes it even makes others more mindful of their own speech when they're around you i know i've found in the workplace that people know that you know if they don't know i'm a christian they at least know that i don't smoke drink or hang out with people that do and I also am very careful about what I say and how I say it most times. And so when people do come around me and they, you know, start to cuss or they say something and they let it slip, they oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, they're very apologetic and, you know, very, you know, uh, uh, embarrassed a little bit that they let that slip in front of me. And I'm glad. I'm glad. Because I don't want to hear that. I don't want my ears and my space polluted with that kind of language. And I'm glad that they understand and recognize that I'm not the type of person that talks like that. So they know that, they, that, that it's not appreciated. This echoes what Paul said in Ephesians 4.29, that we should let no corrupt word proceed out of our mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So having the right flavor of speech and the right timing when speaking to the right person can provide the opportunity we need to bless others and share the gospel. And so now that we've kind of gotten that part out of the way, this is my favorite part of this particular letter. And it's where Paul talks about his buddies because, you know, we as women, we're all about our relationships and our girlfriends. And in this particular passage, more than any other passage of the four uh, epistles that we study, he really addresses some very close friends and companions that he had with him. We all know Paul, and this is the reason why I like it, because Paul's well known, you know, through our studies of him, as a take care of business, nothing but the blood of Jesus, beat me but you can't break me, don't back down, zealous for the Lord kind of guy. He is serious about the work of the Lord. At times he can be warm and endearing, and at other times not so much. We know when he's really admonishing others, he's not very warm. But here we see who were his travel, ministry, and prison companions and the rich, intimate relationships he had with these men. And sometimes as I was reading through this, I wish all of our men kind of uh, were able to share as openly and as expressively as he was in describing his relationships with them. I think that, you know, men feel it, but they just don't as readily articulate it. And there's some ladies even who, you know, are very closed mouth and very close to the vest about their relationships with others. Paul was a man's man. But he had no problem sharing his personal affection for his ministry brothers in a very public way. Because we have to remember that this is not a private letter just going to one individual or even to one church. This was to be read in public assemblies in several churches in Colossae, Laodicea, and possibly Heropolis. And this is what makes these acknowledgments, I think, so powerful and personal. I think sometimes we assume certain Christians are super saints and need very little in the way of human interaction or intimacy. But true spirituality is all about ordinary people being obedient in the ordinary things. And it's not always about the big things that we're faithful in, but in the small everyday business of living where we live out our faith before the world and other believers. Paul is proof that God calls very few of us to be spiritual lone rangers. That's generally how cults and false religions get started. You know, they kind of get get off to themselves and, you know, they make up their own stuff as they go. And it has no resemblance to maybe where they came from, from the true church. But among true believers, there is both a need and a command for us to find and forge godly relationships and close fellowships with each other. This encourages familiarity and also accountability. Those who depart from regular ongoing fellowship within the body of Christ are playing with fire and at risk to fall prey to false teaching or backsliding or walking away from the Lord altogether. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 tell us that we're to consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Ladies, I just know that we all need friends to love on and to love on us and to inspire and encourage us deeply in our relationship with the Lord. Karen touched on this in her study at the retreat, that we are to be in fellowship to bear each other's burdens and exhorting and edifying one another. And without that close, regular, intimate contact, it's hard to even know what's going on in somebody else's life. I mean, we have Instagram, we have Facebook, and we have all these social media, and we have a lot of ways of keeping in touch with others. But there's nothing like sitting across the table from a sister and just Sharing what's going on in your life and and feeling from her, you know, the things that she's feeling and sharing with her the things that you're going through. Social media can't touch that because it's the tone and it's the inflection in your voice. That's what really carries emotion. That's what really carries feelings. And so we need to have that, that intimacy, that contact with each other. And that's especially true as these times become more desperate and wicked and, frankly, more anti-Jesus than ever before. We need to support each other and openly share our affection for one another with encouragement to continue to walk worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. We need to support each other and keep each other lifted up so that we can continue to carry forward and continue to retain our joy i can't tell you how often after i've talked to a sister and shared something with her i walk away feeling uplifted and and reminded of what i have in christ because again we can do our own little pity parties and lose sight of who we are and what we are and have in christ So in these final words of this epistle, Paul shares his affection and accolades for his friends. He talks about eight fellow sojourners and co-laborers in the gospel, and I like to call them his roadies because a lot of these people uh, travel quite a bit with him on some of his missionary journeys. These are converted Jews and Gentiles who were his new friends for his new life and must I say his new adventures in Christ. So we have here in verses seven through nine Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your heart. With Anissimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. In the Greek, Tychicus means fortuitous, and he was indeed fortunate. He had Paul as an associate and vice versa. He was a Gentile and he had become a dear, intimate friend of Paul and is mentioned at least five times by Paul in the New Testament. He was a convert from Macedonia and accompanied Paul near the end of his third missionary journey, going ahead of him and waiting for him in Troas and ultimately going with him to Jerusalem to take an offering to the poor there. And, you know, you just have to know that when you travel that much with somebody, and these are people that travel by foot and by, you know, sea, uh, you get to know them pretty, pretty well. I mean, definitely intimate enough to know a lot of their uh, thinkings and moods and how they respond and react to things. But in this letter, that was about four years prior that he had this association with Paul. So he's got four years of, of, um, of journey with Paul. Enough for Paul to trust him with taking this letter to the church body at Colossae, as well as the letter to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. Tychicus was also the courier for the letter to the Ephesians. And so again, you see this, this pattern of trust and friendship between the two of these men. Paul had built a tremendous trust with him, forged from spending all that time on long, strenuous journeys throughout Asia, Europe, Israel, on land, on sea, uh, in in desperate times and in good times. And that just tells me that you have to be pretty tough to hang with Paul. If he had friends that stayed with him this long through these many adversities, these were pretty tough guys themselves. After Paul's release from prison, Tychicus stayed with him and was considered by Paul as a temporary replacement for Titus, we find in Titus 3.12. And now he was entrusted to bring comfort to a distant flock and news from Paul. He was chosen because of his proven character and ministry gifts as the right person to provide reassurance and information about Paul and his companions that the church was so eager to hear. Paul's next mention is Onesimus, whose name means useful and profitable. Along with Tychicus, he delivered the epistles to the Colossians and to Philemon. He was actually a Colossian and a runaway slave, as we learn in Philemon 10, where Paul calls him his son in the faith who converted while he was in Rome. And through the letter to Philemon, who was also a fellow Colossian, and his master, Paul sends Onesimus back to him to be received as a fellow brother in Christ rather than a mere slave, asking Philemon to forgive him. Paul considered Onesimus trustworthy, reliable, and highly esteemed him. This powerful endorsement before the Colossae church showed Paul's unwavering support for him and showed God's transforming grace at work. At one time, he was considered a criminal and a fugitive for what he did. Now he was a faithful and beloved brother in Christ, worthy of love, trust, and forgiveness. And I just see Onesimus as an example of us going from being slaves to sin to being slaves to the Savior. Paul told Philemon that Onesimus had gone from being unprofitable to being profitable, and he asked that if Onesimus had wronged or owed Philemon anything to put it on his account. This is just what Jesus did for us. He bore our our sins. He paid the price. He satisfied what God required for our redemption from slavery to sin, to being slaves to the Lord. Paul modeled in his walk and his witness what it means to be like Jesus. He set himself aside to intercede on behalf of a sinner like Onesimus. Grace, mercy, humility, and forgiveness are the mind and method of likeness we are to demonstrate. Forgiveness is central to our standing in Christ and how we behave as Christians. One commentator put together these word pictures that I really like to describe forgiveness. It says, to forgive is to turn the key, open the cell door, and let the prisoner walk free. To forgive is to write in large letters across a debt, nothing owed. To forgive is to shoot an arrow so high and so far that it can never be found again. To forgive is to smash a clay pot into a thousand pieces so it can never be pieced together again sometimes it's hard to forgive ladies but there's so much joy in restoration have you ever restored a spouse or family member or friend who betrayed your trust but has since turned over a new leaf and this means whether or not they're saved because you can still turn over a new leaf in life and not necessarily be saved Are you able to forgive someone who deceived you and stole from you if they come and ask for forgiveness? Or do you hold a grudge, feeling justified to withhold forgiveness because what they did was so terrible and you didn't deserve it because we're all about our rights? If you ever feel this way or have ever felt this way, welcome to bearing the cross Jesus bore for you. The lesson from Paul is to forgive, restore, and move on. Don't let someone's past overshadow their future. If God did it for us, we can do it for others. The next friends that Paul mentions are who I like to refer to as his six-pack pals. Uh, Not in the alcoholic beverage, more in the Diet Coke way. Uh, We have Aristarchus, Mark, Jesus, or Justice, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas three Jews and three Gentiles representing the diversity of Paul's friends as well as that of the church. They're mentioned here in Philemon 23 and 24 and it says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Aristarchus was Jewish, obviously, even though he had a Greek name. And that was a common name uh, among Jews who were scattered all over Asia and Europe. Uh, His friendship with Paul began during his third missionary journey while he was in Ephesus. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately for him, he was seized by the rioting mob at the Temple of Diana there because they associated him as a uh, companion of Paul and he accompanied Paul to Jerusalem to take the offering to the church. And he sailed with Paul en route to his Roman incarceration from Acts 27.2. Fellow prisoner literally means one caught with a spear. It refers to a prisoner of war. Most commentators think Aristarchus chose to be imprisoned with Paul versus being forced to stay. He's definitely the type of pal you want to have in a pinch, faithful and true in good times and in bad. Mark, or John Mark as he's referred to in the Acts, is Jewish and identified for the first time as Barnabas's cousin. And you may recall Barnabas and Paul had a very, very sharp contention because Mark had left them at one point in time and gone home during the first missionary journey, and Paul wouldn't have anything to do with him. So at that point, Barnabas and Paul parted ways. But that was 12 years earlier, and now Mark was apparently redeemed and restored in Paul's eyes. We don't know specifically what instructions were given to the church earlier about Mark, but Paul warmly commends him in this letter and again in 2 Timothy 4.11, saying, to get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for the ministry. Paul's Christ-likeness is again an example to us. We often call Jesus the God of second chances. Here, Paul clearly allowed Mark to rehabilitate his earlier youthful failure and now served alongside of him as a fellow worker for the kingdom of God and a comfort to him. Mark was now accepted in the beloved company of others who were treasured by the imprisoned apostle and trusted to carry out his ministry. And we should always remember the second chance we were given by Jesus and be more accepting of others who may stumble in their walk with God. Solomon had this to say, and I really like this passage from Ecclesiastes 4, uh, verses 9 and 10, when he talks about faithful companionship and helping someone recover from a failure. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. We need to be open to recognize when someone has redeemed themselves from previous failure and also be willing to help them recover. Give someone else the second chance that Jesus gave us. Peter also recognized Mark as his spiritual son in 1 Peter 5.13. And I'm thinking this has to be because Peter, more than any of the apostles, knew what it meant to fail and to be recovered and restored to usefulness. In the devotion that she shared at the retreat, Lorraine talked about recovering from a fall. She says, Jesus uses our brokenness to minister to others as we walk hand in hand with him, healing along the way the Holy Spirit enables and instructs us in his word all the way to restoration. Mark continued in the ministry for the kingdom of God as an evangelist and author of the gospel of Mark, which is just another incredible example of God's grace and mercy. We don't know much about Jesus or justice other than he was Jewish and a kingdom co-laborer with Paul, as well as a comfort to him. Jesus was not an uncommon name and means Jehovah is salvation, as you know, and it's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. Justice means righteous, indicating that he had a just and equitable character, very well suited to ministry. Paul didn't have many Jewish Christians ministering with him, and I'm sure Mark and Justice were blessings to him in ways very different than his Gentile companions. His Jewish brothers had been on the same spiritual journey as he he had, so I can imagine that their bond was very special and very personal and very rich. And then now we come to Epaphras, who Paul says is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, who greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For our bear witness that he has a great zeal for you, and those who are in Laodicea and those in Heropolis. And I gave you some background earlier on Epaphras' ties to Paul. He was a, a Gentile from Colossae and church leader with a passionate pastor's heart for his people. And I just want to know if you notice how Paul duplicates himself in his ministry. You see all these men have a lot of the characters and attributes that he himself had. And he mentored to these people and he discipled them during his missionary journeys and his church plants. He didn't selfishly hold on to what he had learned about service and ministry. He passed it on and paid it forward. And so we ought to take his example in ministry. We ought to be training others to take our place. We ought to be discipling and mentoring others to come alongside. And if you want to know more about that, again, get Kathy's retreat study. So like Epaphras, so, so like Paul, Epaphras was a slave to Christ and a prayer warrior on behalf of his flock against the false teaching creeping into their church. We again see the word always, indicating he was constantly engaged in battle, wrestling and striving in his prayers and interceding for them not to be led astray. He prayed for them to become established, rooted, and fixed in the truth, desiring that they mature thoroughly and lack nothing in their faith and understanding of God and his word. And because the heresy appeared to be going viral and spreading to Laodicea and to Heropolis, epaphras had a deep concern that fueled his fervent agonizing prayers for their growth and spiritual maturity and now finally we come to paul's acknowledgement of luke and demas and his closing words to the church verse 14 and 15 say luke the beloved physician and demas greet you greet the brethren who are in laodicea and Nymphus in the church that is in his house This is the same Luke who wrote the third gospel named after him. He was a Gentile and a physician, giving an insightful perspective to his gospel account, especially regarding his descriptions of physical sickness and injury. Luke was Paul's close friend and personal physician and frequently traveled with him as part of the we Paul often mentioned in the book of Acts. He had been with Paul on his second missionary journey and accompanied him to Jerusalem and was also on that treacherous sailing to Rome. Luke is only mentioned three times in the New Testament, each time by Paul, here and in 2 Timothy 4.11, where Paul writes that Luke is the only one with him. We don't have a lot of biography on Luke, uh, but we do know he probably did some of the first medical outreaches as a missionary and an evangelist. He must have put many plans for a medical practice on hold to use his talents to serve the Lord. And in exchange for his selfless service, the Lord allowed Luke the privilege of writing a significant portion of the New Testament and important church history because he was the author of the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And then lastly, Demas is mentioned here and in Philemon 24 as Paul's Gentile assistant in the ministry. Unfortunately, he ended up as a huge disappointment to Paul, abandoning him during Paul's second Roman imprisonment after being seduced by the world and taking off to Thessalonica. There's no indication anywhere in in the scriptures that Demas uh, ever repented or was restored. And he's indeed the saddest member of Paul's six-pack pals. And under Paul's loving guidance and mentoring, he could have accomplished great things for the Lord. But the lure of the world and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life removed Demas from the record of redemptive history. We all probably know of people who once fellowshiped or served with us who are gone now. They succumbed to the seduction of the world and traded the truth for a lie, glory for glitter, and sanctification for self-satisfaction. Our task is to remember to pray for them in the hope that they repent and are restored. Paul also sends greetings to the believers in Laodicea and a special shout out to Nympha or Nymphus. And translators and scholars are kind of ambivalent uh, based on the manuscripts as whether or not this was a man or a woman. Uh, But whoever they were, they hosted a church in their house. And that, as you know, was the custom in the early church. Verse 16 says, now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And as I mentioned earlier, this letter was to be read to several churches in Colossae, as well as Laodicea. And Paul refers to a Laodicean letter that is also to be read. And there's a lot of speculation about that as well, whether the letter was from Paul or to Paul or Nobody can really decide. There's a big debate about it. Bottom line, there's no conclusive opinion, so we'll just leave it at that and move on. But before Paul puts his finishing touch on this letter, he takes a much more direct and less affectionate tone toward Archippus, telling him to take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Archippus lived in Colossae and was a contemporary of Philemon. In Philemon 2, Paul refers to him as a fellow soldier in the ministry and the church met in his home as well. Paul exhorts him to see that he fulfills or carries on with the ministry of the gospel of Christ Jesus that was entrusted to him. And it's actually a warning to him not to fall short of fulfilling his calling. There's no reason given for this uh, stern message, uh, but we can be sure that Paul had the care of the church and the ministry of this overseeing at heart. And then finally, we have verse 18, and he says, This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Paul's signature validated that the letter was genuine and authentic. He typically wrote some personal greetings in his letter, as he did in 1 Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians. But this was also important because he needed to make sure that He was typically known for dictating his letters. Here he needed to make sure that no one tried to further deceive the church and detract from his message, so he gave his own special signature. He again asks for prayer while in prison and then closes with this benediction, imparting a blessing of grace to them and ending the letter as he had begun it. Wow. It's a great letter, isn't it? Very personal had his buddies that he he really loved and was very affectionate toward. Our takeaways on this last chapter are about prayer. Ladies, pray diligently, pray wholeheartedly, pray thankfully. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel and for the Lord to prepare you with the right flavor of speech and the right timing to clearly proclaim his word. Talked about companionship. Make sure that you have friends with you on your journey with the Lord to encourage, comfort, strengthen, and keep you accountable. We're not called to be lone rangers in ministry, so make sure that we have close, intimate, and trusted friends who we can love and who care for us. And then finally, commitment. Stay true to the calling that the Lord has given you. Don't be seduced by the lies, glitter, and self-satisfaction that the world offers carry on in the ministry you've been given for an eternal reward waiting for you in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, thank you once again for just the richness of your word, Lord, to guide and direct us in our lives with you, Father God, in our walk with each other. Lord, I pray that we all find the drive and the need and the vigilance for prayer, Lord. I pray that we each all have companionship and fellowship and friendship with one another, with those who can encourage us and strengthen us, Lord. And I pray, Father, for commitment, Father, that we will just stay committed to the calling that you've given us, Lord. Even when times get difficult, we will not fall away. I thank you, Lord, that um, you give us such good examples in your word, Lord, for us to follow, that we are not lost or without instruction. And I just ask that each and every one of these ladies here tonight follow continues to follow you, to seek after you, and to do the work that you called her to do. And I just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.